Thank you, Wendy and Diane, for, for that. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open up to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we will be in verse 8. Begin in verse 8, verses 8 through 13 is our, is our text this morning. The title of the sermon is, I Am Not Ashamed. And so, this is really the essence of what Paul is telling Timothy as he's writing this letter to him. Uh, But before we uh, go any further, I want to read from chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Would you follow along as I read? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. You notice that in the beginning of verse 8, Paul calls Timothy to remember. He says, remember Jesus Christ. And as I was thinking about that, you know, this weekend we, we went up to, uh, to Pollock and we celebrated Aaron's birthday there and we'll continue to celebrate Aaron, our youngest son's birthday today. But as, I, you know, as we think about uh, celebrating and, and remembering, you know, these are the reasons that we celebrate. We, we, we have birthdays and anniversaries, right? We remember these dates. We celebrate these dates. And remembering and celebrating are, are closely connected. They're important to us, right? Not, not just because we love the person, but take anniversaries, for example. Like, we remember anniversaries, husbands, because they're important, right? And if we forget, we're in trouble, right? We remember because they're important. We want to celebrate. And, and in this case of this close connection between celebrating and remembering, we, we don't just celebrate the person when we recognize their birthday. We're actively remembering their significance in our lives. That's one of the things that we're doing. And Jesus gave Christians specific instructions for remembering him. Any children want to tell me what those specific instructions have to do with? Anyone? Hmm? Any children? He's, I'll give you a hint. He says, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. What is he talking about? Yes. Thank you. The Lord's Supper. That's right. In fact, every time you do this, when you eat the bread or drink of the cup, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus not only gave us a meal to celebrate, but he, he also gave us a way to remember this new covenant relationship we have with him, to remember the sacrifice that he gave for our new life. You know, this is one of the truths that I was reminded of so vividly during sabbatical. It was the significance of remembering in our discipleship with Christ. Remembering what Christ has done as we walk in this daily relationship with him. We need to be reminded often of Christ's work. We need to be reminded to strive 
for holiness and godliness, to live out the mission that God has called us to. And as humans, we tend to to forget those kind of things. This is why we're exhorted not to forsake regularly gathering together for worship. Why? Because we need this. I'll give you a primary example. How many of you took algebra in high school? Raise your hands. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you are good in math? Raise your hands. Okay, so those of you who are good in math, I, I would suggest that if you gave us people who are challenged in math an algebra problem at this stage in our life, and you went away and you came back in 20 minutes, that we would still be looking at this problem like a deer in the headlights, okay? If we don't lose it, right, we use it. You know, and, and this is one of the things that we see over and over in Scripture while we're exhorted and encouraged to remember Jesus Christ, remember the grace that we have in Christ. This is why we gather for worship. This is why we need this, one of the reasons why we need this corporate gathering of the body. And so Paul exhorts Timothy in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, Now, Paul's been exhorting Timothy to be like this guy named Onesiphorus. He was this this encouraging guy who came and was a minister of mercy to Paul while Paul was in prison. That was in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he used these three metaphors to help us understand this calling that we have in Christ, this calling to endure and this calling to share in suffering. These metaphors that he used, they're they're to be a good soldier in Christ Jesus, right? We looked at that last week. It's to be like an athlete, like a hardworking farmer, right? Single-minded devotion in our surrender to this commander, Christ Jesus. We're supposed to have this discipline like the athlete who, when he competes, he doesn't win the crown unless he competes according to the rules, right? And we're supposed to have this diligence in our hard work and our labor, And this hardworking former kind of ties all three together. And so there's this call to be strengthened, right? Chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This strengthening is the continual work of God in the life of his people. He does this by the Holy Spirit. As we depend on God, he's continually strengthening us, strengthening us. And he calls us to walk in endurance as we encounter suffering and hardships and, and trials, And so now he turns from these examples, good soldier, athlete, hardworking farmer, to giving us this picture of experience. He's saying, okay, here's what it looks like. And so this morning, here's what I want us to see, to kind of walk away from this text with. Christ calls me to live unashamedly for his glory and for the life of the world. Christ calls me to live unashamedly for his glory and for the life of the world. So Here's what Paul's saying. Here's how it fleshes out. I've been talking about suffering. I've been talking about uh, depending on on Christ, continually being strengthened in him. I've been talking about entrusting things to others. Here's what that looks like. Here's how it fleshes out. First, he presses us to remember Jesus' experience in verse 8. And what he's pointing to is he's pointing to the, the centrality of the cross in the life of Christ's people, in the life of Christians. Verse 8 offers us really a succinct overview of the gospel 
and why remembering Christ is so important for enduring and living unashamed, especially in the face of suffering. So first thing he does is he reminds us of his person. Paul reminds us of Jesus' person, that Jesus is both human and divine, right? We see that in verse 8. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Now, you might be saying, now, how in the world do you get that he's both human and divine from that? And, and the point is that I, I really think Paul is, is giving us this, this picture or giving us this clue to understand, to see he is talking about the work of Christ, but he's also talking about the person of Christ. He's talking about the dual nature of Jesus, that he's both human and he is divine. He rose from the dead. Christ is fully divine. He is, he is the victorious Savior, God in flesh. In fact, Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, Concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, he's speaking about this divine nature as he's reminding us succinctly of the gospel. So he's telling Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Remember that he's risen from the dead. Remember this when you're in chains. Remember this when hardship comes. Remember this in difficult times that Jesus isn't just some savior that we've exalted. He literally has overcome the grave. And only Jesus, the divine Son of God, possesses the power to overcome the grave. But not only that, he says, offspring of David. The next, the next clause or the next phrase there, not only is he fully God, but he's fully man. As the offspring of David, he is the promised Messiah who came through the lineage of the house of David, Savior of Israel, Savior of the world. Now, we explain these things out in, in a sermon today because we're so far removed, but Timothy would have made these connections. As John says in John's Gospel, John 7, 42, has not the Scripture said that the Christ, the Messiah, comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? The point of this is, is to, to point to his, his kingly role, as we'll see in a moment. And in his humanity that he identified with our weaknesses and that he overcame our weaknesses through his experience of suffering. So the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, even verse 16, but verses 14 through 15 say this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who is able in every respect, or one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What's the point? Well, the point is that Jesus is identified with us. He understands our weaknesses. He understands the, the struggles that we go through, the temptations that we, that we face. He understands what it's like to suffer. So, first, he reminds us of his person, but then we also see that we can be reminded of his work in these two phrases as well. Risen from the dead, that speaks something to the Christian, does it not? It says that Jesus has died. He defeated sin and death when, when he rose. You know, Death is a common denominator that plagues all of humanity. 
plagues every one of us. Every one of us has sinned. And without grace from Christ, we equally and deservedly stand condemned before God. This is the reality of our condition, of the human condition. And this isn't hate speech. This is us being truthful and and, and proclaiming what God's word says, that outside of Christ, we are all condemned. But because of Christ, we have this glorious hope and promise of salvation. Because of his resurrection, we have been brought into a new status. We are called to be, we are in Christ. There is a new relationship for all those who have come by faith and believed in Jesus. And scripture says that we are then in Christ. But not only does his work speak about resurrection, but offspring of David. This next phrase, again, he's not just our high priest, as the Hebrews passage tells us. He's actually our king. It points to his kingly role as a king. Here's what Jesus has done. He has ushered in God's kingdom on earth. And then he challenges his disciples. They say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And then he says, okay, pray in this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? And implicit in that prayer is his disciples or his disciples saying, use me to accomplish your mission, your will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Use me in accomplishing this mission. May it be on earth as you will it in heaven. And so he, his work, that he is the victorious savior, he is the king who has come and he has conquered, he is also both human and divine. And so here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying Jesus' experience teaches us that death is the gateway to life and suffering is the path to glory. Death is the gateway to life and suffering is the path to glory. And think about, think about this. Jesus has already spoken of this in his earthly ministry. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, he said, for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, right? So death is the gateway to life. Jesus exemplifies this, does he not? He dies in order to give life. But not only is death the gateway to life, suffering is the path to glory. Think about what Jesus continuously said to his disciples. And here's one example, Matthew 23, 11. The greatest among you shall be your what? servant we really deep down if we're honest we would rather be served than to serve someone is that not right i mean if we're honest we would rather be served than to serve someone and this relationship with christ and this strengthening of the holy spirit it it helps us overcome that fleshly temptation it helps us to learn a new way a gospel way, right? And this is, why, this is why the kingdom of God is so antithetical to the kingdom of the world. Because it's, it's just, it's a different way. We want to put self first, but Jesus calls us to put self last, put others first. And so it's, it's 
works itself up practically. And so Jesus' experience teaches us that death is a gateway to life and suffering is the path to glory. So Paul's saying to Timothy, look, Timothy, when you're, when you're tempted to avoid pain, humiliation, suffering, even death, when you're tempted to be ashamed of Christ and your witness, remember Jesus Christ and think again. Remember his work. Remember his person. We need to remember and remind ourselves of Christ our Savior and endure so that we live unashamed Christian lives. This is what Jesus is calling us to. But not only do we see Jesus' experience, Paul speaks of his own experience. Note Paul's experience in verses 9 and 10. He's not exhorting Timothy to walk through something that he himself has not already been through. His suffering is a direct result of his preaching the gospel. Right? Look at the end of verse 8. He says, as preached in my gospel. You know, there were various versions of the gospel being preached in Paul's day. And so Paul warns Timothy, as we'll see in a few weeks, to remain sound in his teaching and not to get away from the truth of Scripture. A prime example is seen in, just in verse 18 here in chapter 2 when he, he says about Hymenaeus and Philetus that they have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. You know, since becoming a Christian, Paul has battled against those who wanted to distort the gospel who wanted to add something, some qualification, the qualification of of good works to salvation. Jesus plus something equals salvation. He's battled to say salvation is, is through grace, by faith in Christ alone. So there, there are no other gods. There is no earning one's way to God. We continue to proclaim this truth about the gospel. And this has implications and bearing on our lives and our neighbors in a, in, a, in, a, in a culture where we think we have to earn everything. The gospel is really refreshing. In a mindset where we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make something of ourselves. You know, I mean, that's part of the, the Western culture's mindset. You know, it's the American dream. You can make something of yourself. You just work hard enough. And that is not the gospel. I'm not saying that doesn't happen and that can't be right and good in a culture. But I'm saying that is not the culture of the gospel. Jesus says, come to me and I'll, I'll give you salvation. You don't have to fix yourself up before you come to me. You don't have to take a bath before you come to me. You don't have to get get all clean and become this great moral person before I'll accept you into my kingdom. In fact, you can't be good enough. You can't be moral enough. You can't be clean enough. This is the good news and the hope of the gospel, that Jesus transforms us. He, He accepts us. And by giving us of his Holy Spirit, when we believe in him, he changes us. That is incredible news. So Paul says, I'm suffering because of preaching this gospel. But here's the truth that I rejoice in. Although I'm bound with chains as a criminal, look at the next line. It's incredible. The word of God is not bound. Chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, he gives testimony to that. He says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might fully be proclaimed, that all the Gentiles might hear it. 
So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. So he's saying, look, in my imprisonment, I actually got to go and stand before people and declare and proclaim the gospel. I love Spurgeon's quote here. The word of God is like a lion, right? You've heard it a hundred times. You don't have to defend the lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and it will defend itself. Or Paul's verse in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and also for the Greek. Listen, the effect of the gospel cannot be hindered by imprisonment. In fact, in the midst of suffering, the gospel is given a megaphone. This is why Christians are called to endure suffering, to live unashamed lives for Christ. Paul even takes it a step further, and he's saying, see the big picture here, disciple of Christ. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. You see that there in verse 10. The doctrine of election doesn't minimize the need to preach the gospel and endure suffering in Paul's opinion. It strengthens him, actually, to endure through suffering. Why? He says, so that the elect might obtain salvation in Christ. And by elect, Paul means those who have yet to be saved and those who are to be, who are saved. Hear this. The one who distorts the doctrine of election by claiming that God is going to save those whom he calls regardless of their action. Therefore, concluding, I don't need to evangelize. Those who do this have twisted the scriptural doctrine to justify their own disobedience. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10, 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe of him Uh, How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Listen, this isn't just a word for preachers, right? It's a word for all who follow Christ. God did not radically save me so I could live however I want. That's what he saved me from. He saved me from me because my way is the path of destruction. Look at what he said in chapter 1, verse 9 here in 2 Timothy. Who saved us, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And so my my encouragement is to take courage, Christian, and live boldly, live unashamedly for the gospel of Christ. He will strengthen you. He will guard you. He will sustain you. It's his power at work in you. We want to see all people obtain salvation. We want to see all people come to faith in Christ so they can live with Christ in eternal glory. That is our desire, church. That is what we want. So let us be faithful to live boldly and unashamedly. Paul's experience teaches us how to boldly and unashamedly live out the gospel because nothing can hinder God's word from accomplishing God's will. And this is the heartbeat of the church. It is the call of endurance for believers. We're exhorted to remember Jesus' experience and to follow Paul's model as we see his experience. And lastly this morning, finally this morning, we see the common Christian experience in verses 11 through 13. 
And in verses 11 through 13, Paul invokes most likely what is a common Christian saying. And then, you know, he, he says that it's trustworthy. The saying is trustworthy. And by that, he, he means that you can find scriptural support for everything in the saying. So he's pulling in this, this saying. You know, we have these kind of sayings today, I think. You hear people say in church, uh, once saved, always saved, right? And you go and you say, well, where do we see that in the Bible? Uh, and then you kind of, some people say, well, it's not once saved, always saved, but it's when saved, always saved, right? And so, but, but what we're talking about there is security of salvation, right? And we can go into Scripture and we can see what Scripture speaks about when, he talks about, when it talks about our security as believers, that, that when we become saved and are brought into God's family, right, that, that no one can snatch us out of God's hand. And so this saying, he says, is trustworthy. And he begins the first line there, second line in verse 11, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. So does this sound familiar? And I think it does. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, in verses 8 and 10, he says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And then verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What's he saying here? He's saying that if we've died to sin through Christ, we ought to seek to live in him and he in us. But then he goes on, if we endure, we will also reign with him. There is this this promise of when we endure in this life as Christians, then we will also reign with him. Romans 8, 17 says this, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So here's the promise of our reward for endurance, to reign with Jesus. And then thirdly, he says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. You know, these are certainly scary words. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus said, But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You know, I think these words are scary for believers because, well, for Christians, for the sake of our security in Christ, we want to know what does denial look like, especially in light of verse 13. Look at verse 13. If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I don't know what you immediately think when you read that verse, but I immediately think when I read these verses, I deny Christ in my heart every time I sin. And then I, I, I kind of begin to question, okay, so what's the difference between deny and faithless? Here, deny probably means to to openly disown or to repudiate Christ. But we have to be careful here because did not Peter 
do this very thing? Did he not openly disown and repudiate Christ? Yes, he did. And yet Christ graciously reached him. And so it seems to be saying that one of two things may, if a person dies in this state of open denial and repudiation of Christ, so as to turn their back on Christ and not have faith in him at all, this is the person whom Jesus will deny. Or, or of the person who, though being a hearer of the gospel, right, Paul has been proclaiming the gospel, who, being a hearer of the gospel, has continued in a state of unbelief and rejection, who has continued to repudiate this truth about Jesus Christ, that is the person whom Jesus will deny. So how does this square with the Christian being faithless and Christ remaining faithful because he can't deny himself? Well, we know and hopefully acknowledge that we are all guilty of being faithless. If, if you don't think that you're being faithless at points in your life, I'd like to talk to you to understand your perspective on what being faithless really means. And so one of the things we see here is verse 13 comes back to say, but, but Christ's faithfulness, he won't, he won't deny himself. And I think Christ's faithfulness is of great comfort to us as believers and can be of great comfort to us as believers but listen there's a tension here that i think we need to feel and keep in perspective if we lean too far toward understanding that because christ can't deny himself that his faithfulness overcomes our faithlessness then here's what we'll do we'll find ourselves justifying our sin never struggling to overcome temptation never seeking to grow in godliness and never seeking to live out Christ's commands, never seeking to be transformed by the gospel. And if this is the case for a person who claims to be a follower of Christ, then we have to ask ourselves, am I really a follower of Christ? You see, there's a danger in trying to figure out the line that's drawn between deny and faithless. And I think that danger is that we're we're seeking to figure out just how far we can go in our rebellion and still be safe, right? Where's that line that I can inch up to living in the flesh but still being a Christian and be safe and not have to worry that my salvation is in jeopardy some way, right? So that's kind of human nature. We want to inch up to that line, right? We tell our children, don't don't touch that, and they get as close as they can to touching it, right? You can't have that candy, and then they just want one, right? It's sin nature, within us but instead we should focus on this truth Christ is faithful and he calls us to live unashamedly for him and this requires being strengthened by the Holy Spirit chapter 2 verse 1 and and remembering how truly great Christ our Savior is and that's what Paul's calling Timothy to and that's what he's calling us to you see the common Christian experience encourages us to pursue Christ's transforming work in our lives and to trust in his faithfulness to his people. Christ calls me, he calls you, he calls us to live unashamedly for his glory and for the life of the world because our living for Christ is tied up in the mission that he has called us to.
They go hand in hand. So this morning, I close by saying, he is faithful. In the midst of temptation, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficult days, in the midst of hardship, he is faithful. In the midst of standing up and boldly living, unashamedly living for the gospel, he is faithful. In the midst of seeking to lead your children in discipleship and, and, and live as a, a faithful husband and wife, Christ is faithful. Are you trusting in him? Are you depending upon him continually being strengthened by him? Are you actively remembering what Christ has done, his work and his person that he understands, that he identifies with us? that he has given us hope for a relationship with him. This morning, I want to close us in prayer. And if you have questions about what it means to be in this relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to be able to answer those questions that you have. I'd be glad to speak with you after the service and sit down, or one of our elders would be standing on this side of the, uh, the, the sanctuary at the end of the service if you'd like to come and speak with one of us about a relationship with Jesus or about uh, surrendering something in your life or just need prayer, uh, we would love to be able to, to do that and pray with you and talk to you. Let us close in prayer now. The worship team's going to come. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness toward us. Thank you, Jesus, that you entered our humanity, that you overcame death and the grave. And you took what we deserve so that we might have eternal life. Thank you, Father, that you give us brothers and sisters in Christ to bring encouragement to us, to help us to press on. Thank you that we have such a great cloud of witnesses around us who have also gone before us. And I pray, God, that we would be mindful of remembering, as Paul tells Timothy, remembering Jesus Christ, our Savior, and what he has done. Lord, strengthen us now to live for you, to live unashamedly, to live boldly for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?